0: An underlying theme in many different spiritual traditions is the understanding and investigation of the understanding of how we create dualistic perception. How we create this feeling of separation and distinction through concepts and perceptions of duality. Because to the degree that we are lost in dualistic perception, we imprison ourselves in a sense of isolation, in a sense of separateness. In one of his books, Ken Wilber, in the book Spectrum of Consciousness, he outlined very succinctly different levels of duality, and they relate quite well to the experiences that we have in our meditation practice. The most fundamental split, the most fundamental duality which we create, is that of subject and object of self and other, of inside and outside. There's some process of mind through which we identify with ourselves as an organism apart from the totality of the universe, apart from the wholeness. We separate out this sense of organism. This is the first level of duality which we create. The, The duality of self and everything apart from self. But generally we're not satisfied with creating just that level of duality. We proceed further. And we begin to split and fragment even this sense of organism. We create a duality within it of identifying with the sense of someone having a body. We identify with the mind in such a way that we create a sense of self or an I having a body or a sense of self or I, to whom experience happens. So this is a further narrowing, a further limitation. We go from the wholeness of things, to the organism, separate from the environment, to a part of the organism, that is this I sense, separate from the rest of it. And the mind is still not satisfied with that level of duality. It goes even one step further. It even fragments this sense of self, this sense of I, into what Jung, the great psychologist called Jung called persona and shadow. Persona means mask. And in this sense it refers to the identification we have with various thoughts and feelings, self-images, that sense of the mask which we present to ourselves, present to the world. That part of our minds, that part of the ego mind which is acceptable, which we like, which we approve of, which we identify with, that's all the persona. The shadow is that part of the mind, it's the dark side, the part we don't like, the part we don't approve of, the part that we repress, don't allow into the light. And it's quite appropriately called a shadow for two reasons it's a shadow because it's the dark side of our minds, the dark side of ourselves, and it's also appropriately called a shadow because it always follows us. The fact that we don't acknowledge it not only does not eliminate it, it actually feeds and strengthens these forces in the mind because they start working or they continue to work on a very unconscious level. They motivate us, they condition us, and because we're unaware of them, because we're unwilling to look at the shadow, we never become free of that conditioning. So you can see how all of these levels of duality, it's a progression of limitation. It's a progression of constriction. We start out with a sense of wholeness, oneness. We separate out this organism from the oneness. Someone used a very nice phrase to describe this very first level of dualistic perception. They called it a rent in the seamless fabric of the universe. The seamless fabric of the universe is the oneness of things. The first rent, the first tear in that seamless fabric is the separating out of self from other, subject from object. We limit it further by separating out an ego sense within the organism. That sense of I to whom experience is happening. That sense of I who has a body, who possesses a body. That's another duality, another separation. And we further limit it by fragmenting, fragmenting even this ego sense, the sense of I into persona and shadow, into what we're willing to be with, what we're willing to open to, and what we're not we're closed off to. We can understand our practice, the practice of Dharma, from one perspective, as a reintegration of all of these splits, all of these rents. It becomes a process of healing, rather than the process of continuing fragmentation, a process of unifying. Sometimes when we speak of unification or oneness, people might conjure up the idea that a practice then means somehow, dissolving into an undifferentiated cosmic unity, and that's what non-dualistic perception means. I think that's a fanciful idea. The process of unification, the process of integration, comes about when we can understand all the different levels of reality and learn to play, learn to be responsive on the appropriate level. For example, we might know according to physics that the zafu or the chair, everything made up of physical elements, is basically empty space. If you look at a subatomic level, there's much more space than there is matter. And we might know this, and we might know it fairly deeply, and still we come in and sit down on a chair. We have some confidence that the chair is going to support us, that we're not going to fall through it. It doesn't make the understanding that it's all space or mostly space incorrect. It means that we operate on different levels. and On one level of perception is mostly space and on another level of perception there's something solid there that we can sit on. The great power of coming to a deeper level of understanding Whether it's the understanding that the material elements are mostly space or the understanding that there is no fundamental differentiation between subject and object, coming to that place of oneness. The power of these insights and understandings is that it enables us to operate on the other levels with much greater freedom we tap into a much more fundamental energy. And so we can play on all the relative levels with much less attachment or much less fear. We start the process of reintegration, of healing the dualistic perceptions on the level of persona and shadow. We begin to watch and look at and observe our minds. We look at the persona. That's the first thing that we observe. It's all those thoughts and feelings and emotions and images, all those aspects of our experience which create the sense of I in our minds. All the masks that we wear, the postures that we assume, the mental postures. We begin to see and understand this process of identification with them. We begin to develop a dispassionate attitude towards the shadow. There are so many parts of our experience which we don't like. We don't want to be there. We condemn, we judge, we push away. And it can be difficult feelings in the body, it can be difficult emotions, feelings of hatred, of rage, of unworthiness, of loneliness, of profound alienation. It can be so many things, so many parts of the mind that is the shadow side. The process of healing The process of integration is a willingness to open to all of those sides, to see the shadow in all its manifestation. We begin to bring to consciousness all that or much of that which is subconscious, that is below the threshold of our awareness, we develop that sensitivity in our practice to settle back and allow it to all come up. And you've seen over these last months how much has come up. You see all of those, all of those difficult parts. When we can cultivate this attitude of acceptance, of allowing for both the persona and the shadow, then there's much less conflict in our lives. We're not trying to push some things away and frantically holding on to others. We have much less to defend, much less to protect. So this practice of awareness, this practice of mindfulness, allows us to integrate these two elements begin to heal this level of duality. As we go on, we move to the next level of healing. We bring together the persona in the shadow, accepting both, allowing for both, and then we begin to heal the split or the duality between the mind and the body. In understanding this, a great care is needed. Because here's where it's very easy to go off track. The reason being that one of the fundamental insights in our practice is exactly the difference between mind and body. The whole insight into nama-rupa is understanding that distinction, that these are two different processes. The process of consciousness and the process of material elements. So then what does it mean to heal this fragmentation, this split? What it means is that we learn not to identify with some sense in the mind of being I or self, which has the body, which owns the body. We no longer identify with that part of the mind, that sense of self, to whom experience happens. Because as soon as we identify with that part of the mind, create that sense of I, of self, we have created that split. And as long as we are identified with that sense of self in the mind, that identification creates fear, creates attachment, it creates separation, creates comparing. If there's an I, if there's a self, then we have to defend it, and we have to protect it, and we have to gratify it. And our whole lives revolve around this particular identification. We've created an I around which everything revolves. Particularly these kind of difficult or unwholesome mind states of attachment, of aversion, of fear, of judgment, of comparing, of separation. And it's like, do you know what a Mobius strip is? It's a strip that It's fastened in such a way a strip of paper that has no beginning and end. It's it's like a, a loop with a twist in it. It becomes a mobius strip of conditioning. This dualistic perception, which is created when we identify with the sense of self in the mind, the ego mind, as separate and distinct from the body, that identification, that sense of self, feeds and conditions these different emotions of fear and attachment and desire. These emotions reinforce the sense of self. The more we have fear and desire and attachment, the stronger is the sense of someone who has them. And so it is a loop of conditioning. The identification creates these Feelings, the feelings create and further strengthen the identification. And so we become imprisoned in this particular dualistic perception. There's another way that we are so deeply conditioned and imprisoned by this level of duality. When we, when we have identified with a sense of I in the mind, right, to whom experience happens. A consequence of that is that we begin to believe all of the various projections of this ego mind, all the thoughts and fantasies. And as an example of this, which you've experienced countless times on the retreat, it's very, very obvious in the walking meditation, you know, where you can be doing the walking and between one step and the next have created New York or San Francisco or London or relationships, marriages, divorces, <laughs> children, jobs, houses, careers, successes, failures, the whole world is created in our minds as these thoughts and projections between between the reality of one step and the next and the force of them, the power they have over us is that we have this strong sense of I, this identification with the mind. That this is who I am, and so we tend to believe all of these outpourings of the mind. And we lose the connection with what is actually happening. The touching of the ground. I mean, just something so basic, so simple, an in-breath or an out-breath. if we learn not to identify with the mind, which doesn't mean not distinguishing the mind and the body, that's not the unification that's meant here. There is a distinction, there is a difference. The duality to be overcome is the identification with the mind as being who we are, the creation of the self in that identification. There's a very apt image, which comes from Greek mythology, which captures the essence of this integration. And it's the image of the centaur, mythological figure that has the head and shoulders of a person, of a human, and the body of a horse. And in this image, this figure is represented as a unified organism which is quite different than a rider a human on a horse riding the horse mostly we live in the world of thinking that we are on the horse there's an I a self within this organism to whom the organism belongs In our practice, we can begin to open up to what might be called centaur consciousness, where we unify the sense of organism. We don't separate out. It doesn't mean not distinguishing the head from the feet or the head from the body. There are different parts to the centaur, but they're part of a whole. We're not separating part of it out from the rest. And this is a very essential element of healing for us. Not identifying with part of the organism as being who we are, but seeing that who we are is the totality of it. That's what's meant by this integration of mind and body. We distinguish them, but don't lay claim to either part as being more self than the other. We don't separate ourselves out in that way. As we get a greater sense of ourselves as organism, as a unified organism, rather than as a fragmented one, we can then begin to integrate the very fundamental duality of subject and object, of self and other than self, of organism and environment, of inside and outside. Because that is the basic dualistic perception which holds us prisoner. And our practice is very much geared to seeing that that perception of separation, of duality, is a concept. It does not reflect our actual experience. As an example, inside or outside? Where is the hearing? When we're just in the hearing, there's no body, there's no ear, there's no bell, there's just the hearing. And in that moment of hearing, there's no separation, there's no subject, there's no object, there's no inner, there's no outer. There is just the moment of that experience. This is reflected in one of the teachings of the Buddha, which we've mentioned before, but it so succinctly describes this understanding of non duality. In the seen, there is just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, smell, taste, and touched, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. What there is, is a progression, a sequence of moments of hearing, of seeing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking. They don't belong to anyone. They don't refer back to anyone. There's no one who possesses them. And the experience itself is a coming together, an interdependence of what we call inside and outside. For example, how does a moment of hearing arise or a moment of seeing arise? It arises when certain causes come together. If there's color coming toward the eye and there's light and there's a physical organ, and there's attention. seeing consciousness comes into being. It's not that there's a consciousness in here waiting to receive an object. That would be a dualistic understanding, that there's this consciousness, there's this I in here waiting to receive objects. But what we see in our practice is that's not how it happens. This moment of consciousness is arising through the interdependence, through the coming together of all of these elements. In seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking, there's no separation, there's no subject and object, there's no self and other. There is just the moment's experience. And so in this last healing, in this last integration, we go from the sense of ego center, the sense of self, separated from the environment, separated from everything outside. We go from that ego center to what could be called the zero center, where we don't identify with any part of experience. We don't lay claim to any aspect of experience as being I, as being self. We begin to see The process of conditionality of all phenomena. Because of this, this arises. When the conditions fall away, that particular consciousness falls away. There's no one behind it and no one to whom it's happening. This is what we are this interdependence of inside and outside, of subject and object. There's no fundamental distinction or separation. The question arises, even if one comes to some understanding of these levels of duality, dualistic perception, how do we actually practice? How do we accomplish the unification? How do we accomplish the healing? There is an intermediate space between this ego-centered view of things where we're in this very tight prison of persona and shadow where we're identified with this tiny little part of the whole, a tiny part of the mind which is acceptable to us which we're willing to be with. I mean, just think how narrow that is in terms of of our view of ourselves compared to the non-dual awareness, the oneness of all phenomena. It's an incredibly limited viewpoint. How do we go from that ego center to the zero center? where we're not identified with anything. There's an intermediate space in the mind which leads us from one to the other. And that intermediate space is that space of acceptance and allowance. It's that space of love. Love, in this sense, does not mean affection for a particular person. It doesn't mean sentimentality. What it means is a very deep appreciation a very deep respect, a very deep openness for every moment's experience. Can we love in that way of allowing and opening and connecting with every thought, every sensation, every sound, every image, every breath, Because in this quality of love, we see that operation of two becoming one. It's really the the deepest kind of intimacy. Because we go from separation and duality to the experience of oneness with the object. But it cannot come about unless we have that Unless we have that connectedness, we have that appreciation, that sense of love for each moment of our experience. That is the connector. That's the quality which leads us from ego mind to the zero center. There are some interesting ramifications of what love means in this sense. One of the things it means is complete honesty. We have to be totally honest with what's happening, not pretending that something isn't happening because we'd rather it wasn't, or not hoping for something else because it might be more pleasant, then that quality of love is absent. So it's not denying anything and not grasping for anything. And another implication of this quality of love, which is something that's not usually associated with it, but is actually profoundly connected, is the aspect of dispassion. Because the growth of wisdom can only come about through a dispassionate mind. Dispassion means desirelessness, non-craving. If we are looking at experience through the filter of our craving, through the filter of our wanting, through the filter of our desires, we are not seeing what's there. We're not open to what's there. We're not loving what's there because it's all filtered by the desire and craving in the mind. Love becomes possible in desirelessness, in dispassion, because then we are honest, then we are open, then we are connected to the truth of that moment. The power of love in the sense is the power of dispassion. And the wisdom of this love leads us to an increasingly profound understanding of the zero center. What does zero center mean? It means that instead of our identifying with various aspects of the whole, whether it's identifying with the whole organism, or identifying with the mind, or identifying with the persona within the mind, instead of limiting ourselves and creating that sense of separate self in that identification, coming to the zero center means we don't identify with anything. Not thoughts, not emotions, not sensations, not the breath, not sights, not sounds, not love, not wisdom, not this, not this, not this, not this. We identify with nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. It's in that total non-identification. Because any identification is already, in that moment, a limitation. We have created duality in every moment we identify with something. Because we've created the sense of self apart from the whole in that moment. And so you can see how powerful the whole development of mindfulness is. In every moment of mindfulness there is non-identification. There is simply the awareness of thought, of feeling, of sensation, of breath, of sight, of sound, of smell, just the moment arising and passing. And so we begin to ground ourselves in zero rather rather than to ground ourselves in ego. I'd like to read a wonderful little poem by Chuang Tzu which expresses Well, oh, you'll hear what it expresses. <laughs> <laughs> and see if you can see if you can in a way picture the imagery of the poem because it's it's really beautiful. The name of it is Starlight and Non-Being. Starlight asks Non-Being, Master, are you or are you not? Since Starlight received no answer whatever, he set himself to watch for Non-Being. He waited to see if Non-Being would put in an appearance. He kept his gaze fixed on the deep void, hoping to catch a glimpse of non-being. All day long he looked and saw nothing. He listened, but heard nothing. He reached out to grasp and grasped nothing. And then Starlight exclaimed at last, this is it, this is the furthest yet. Who can reach it? I can comprehend the absence of being, but who can comprehend the absence of nothing? If now, on top of all this, non-being is, who can comprehend it? Starlight in search of non being. If, on top of all this, non being is, who can comprehend it? This is the zero center, the isness of non being. the absence of nothing. It's very subtle. We work on all of these levels of unification. We work on the level of unifying the shadow side and the persona. Not splitting, not separating out those different parts of the mind. We integrate, we heal. We look at the persona and the ways we identify, the ways we create our masks, and we welcome in the shadow. We see all those sides of ourselves. We integrate the sense of the mind in the body. Not identifying with a sense of someone who has a body. Going from riding the horse to being the centaur, a unified organism. and We further heal, we go from the sense of being a unified organism, but still separated from everything else, to a non-identification with the organism, where there's no inside and no outside, no separation, no division. The teachings and the practice occur on all of these different levels. So healing is going on, integration is going on many different ways. Sometimes it gets confusing to people because the teachings can be expressed from different of these levels And sometimes they appear contradictory, because what's true on one level may not be apparently true on another, and so they seem to be real clashes. Korean Zen master Sansanin expressed this paradox very well. He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And that's what we have to understand. That on one level there is no right and no wrong. It's all just empty phenomena rolling on. And so we sit and we don't judge our thoughts. This is a good thought, this is a bad thought. I'm a good person because of this, I'm a bad person because of that. We really see the emptiness of it all. There's no right and no wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. And so in the level of action, in the level of intention, in the level of motivation, we discriminate because we see that particular energy has consequences. We understand the law of cause and effect. These two are not opposed. They're expressions of what's true on different levels. And we have to become sophisticated enough in our understanding that we can apply the appropriate level to each of these teachings. There's another, another um, apparent contradiction. Thank you for listening.